And one of the interesting things that happen is that when your brain is metabolizing ketones, that it will shuttle some of the glucose into these different metabolic pathways that can increase like our natural antioxidant production. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, my conversation is with Chris Irvine. He is a health researcher, a writer, an educator focusing on the impact of low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets on health and human performance. Chris has a master's degree in exercise and nutrition science and has spent his time in graduate school studying and conducting ketogenic research. He is the creator of the brand The Ketologist, which is known for producing social media infographics and educational health content. Chris is the author of Keto Answers, Mommy, Do I I Have to Eat This? And he is the education manager and podcast host of Perfect Keto. So we had a really great discussion today. We talked, started with an unexpected little twist on uh, raising children because Chris is a new-ish dad. And we were talking about how some of the benchmarks for development have shifted since my uh, child was uh, 10 months old and his uh, son at the time of this recording is 10 months old. So talked a little bit about uh, adaptation, milestones, which led us really beautifully and unexpectedly into the ketogenic diet and why the adaptations that you can acquire when you have a metabolic intervention like ketogenic therapy can be very useful. So we talked about micronutrients and macronutrients. We talked about protein, um, of course, having the uh, handle, the ketologist. Uh, My question for him was team protein or team no protein or low protein. Uh, We talked about the importance of protein, gluconeogenesis. We talked about inflammation and the contrast between short-term acute inflammation and long-term chronic low-grade inflammation and how this affects our energy output and by proxy our mitochondria. We talked about the thyroid and the ketogenic diet. We talked about women and the ketogenic diet. We talked about exogenous ketone supplementation and how punching out ketone numbers for women is actually a little bit more difficult um, versus our male counterparts. And we explore some of the mechanistic explanations for why that is. We talk about cholesterol, the big bad bunny that is cholesterol. So we differentiate between uh, high density lipoproteins, low density lipoproteins, their tendency to uh, oxidize or ha- LDL specifically having a tendency to oxidize at a higher rate than our high density lipoproteins do. 
We talked about LDL as an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And we talk about uh, LDL particle number. We talk about pattern A and pattern B. And we talk about some of the other contributing factors to cardiovascular disease. And we talk about other labs, including HbA1c, what glycation is, and why that number is also very important. And then finally, we talk about his new venture at BioCoach, which is a app and a glucometer and a ketone index reader. And he talks a little bit about some of the fun things that they are up to. Overall, this is going to be a very good conversation. For many of you that have tried the ketogenic diet, or maybe you're coming back to it after a time, we can really explore why ketone bodies are an important um, optimizer for brain performance and focus, why we want to be thinking about preventing injuries like uh, we talk about foosh injuries or fall on outstretched hand injuries, hip uh, fractures and the like, and the deleterious effects that those have on our cognition and our lifestyle and our health span. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Chris is so well-spoken, so well-researched. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Chris Irvine. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Chris Irving, I am so excited to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I think uh, the last time we spoke, I was having you on my podcast. So now we get to like switch roles a little bit. Now here. we get to swap. Yeah. And when we yeah. came, when I was on your show, your baby was just a couple months old. And I think I saw, did I see him walking, not walking where he was like straddling the table? Yeah. He's starting to, to walk. He's uh, just turned 10 months about a week ago. Yeah. Um, so he's, we're still, still shy of a year, but he's starting to use one of the little walkers, you know, and he's taking steps and pushing that around. Uh, starting to get brave enough to take his hands off of things and stand up on his own. So I think we're pretty close. I, I had told, you know, probably last year back in October, uh, my brother-in-law is getting married here in the next uh, couple of months. And, you know, he'll be, my son will be a year and one week at the time of the wedding and he's the ring bearer. So I've been telling people for the last year, I said, he's going to be walking down the aisle for this wedding. And everybody said, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like a year and a week. That's a little early. I don't know if he's going to be walking. And sure enough, like, couple weeks ago he started pushing the walker around so i'm telling you guys like he might stumble down but like we're gonna He's have training. him walking down this aisle yeah we're training He's every training. day that's so funny because um my first son took his first steps at like 10 and a half months and it seems wow. now 
and we can we can you know maybe this is a bit of a deviation, but it's interesting how some of the developmental milestones. And my son now, uh, you know, the started walking at ten and a half. Uh, he's t- now going to be twelve in in November, and it's mm-hmm. interesting over the course of the last ten to twelve years how we've seen such dramatic shifts in developmental milestones for people. Like for p- someone to say to you, "Hey, a year is really early for walking." Yeah. You know, when I, when my baby was, was a year, it was like, no, he should be walking by 12, like 12 months, like wow. 12, 12 to it's like they're move, moving the goalposts a, a little, little bit. It seems like it, like a 12 yeah. to 15 months is kind of when they should be, you know, being able to take one or two steps, like not fully walking, like not strolling down the street with you, but you know, like steps, right. right. And then maybe falling down and getting up again. And it does seem that, um, I remember a couple of years ago, they changed the recommendations even on meat, um, that meat shouldn't be uh, part of the part of our our baby's diet, and I was like, well, that was you know, I gave them butternut squash, I gave them blueberries, and then it was like meat, you know, it was like ground up, but you know, it was really, really, you know, f- you know, the consistency was different for them to be able to swallow and stuff. But yeah. meat was like a really early food that I had introduced, and now they're sort of. It's interesting to see some of the changes that are shifting over time. As you know, I have friends like yourself who are having babies, and I'm like, oh, what are they? You know, what's the little thing? Yeah, that what is saying? it now? Yeah, yeah. I kind of yeah. want to get a pulse on it, but I know that's a little bit off topic. But it's just interesting to see how things. It seems like the the lenience is getting. Maybe there's more lenience, or there's more maybe. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Yeah, but. it's it seems like there's a little bit of a well the meat one's funny because um that's primarily what our son eats is meat. Like kid just houses steak and brisket and everything yeah, like yeah. that. He loves it. <laughs> and uh, avocado. My kid would have meat yeah. and avocado. That was his main yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's like that's his that's his favorite stuff. But I, I think it's this like it's turning into this notion that like we shouldn't push our children. And it's interesting. I, w- I was reading a book called the fourth turning and it kind of talks about the different generations and how history kind of repeats these different cycles and how within each generation, as certain generations become of age and enter adulthood, um, it changes the way that like parenting occurs. And, you know, the it's shown like, you know, my generation, me being about 30 years old, uh, we were a lot more protected than the generation ahead of us. And, you know, historically speaking, now the generation below us. So like, you know, my, our children are supposed to be the most protected historically speaking, like people will have the most precautions and things like that. And, and I think it's kind of created this like, oh, you just let them learn at their own pace. You don't push them too hard. Um, you know, it's okay if they're a little bit behind. Uh, I'm trying to, you know, I'm not definitely not trying to be like a, a stickler or anything, but I'm trying to break the mold a little bit on that. And like, I, you know, I think I generally subscribe to the fact that like, humans are anti-fragile. Like we get stronger when, when we're pushed within, you know, reasonable bounds, um, you know, within our limitations. And so that's, that's kind of been my approach is like, look, if you want to, you know, when he first started crawling, it's like, if I put something exciting over here in the corner and you want to crawl to that thing 15 times in a row, I'm going to keep moving it and keep making you crawl 15 times in a row, you know, until you don't want to do it anymore. And, you know, if you want to start pushing that walker around, like we're going to do it till you get tired because, you know, I'm going to push it a little bit. So yeah, I think we, we tend to coddle our children a little bit more than maybe, you know, a couple of generations above us did. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I, I would agree with that. I know that, you know, now it seems like because we have so much access to, let's say social media, that it can be like terror and, you know, anarchy outside, but it's like in the context of history, human history, this is the safest time that we have ever mm-hmm. existed. And, you know, I'm older than you. And, you know, I remember when I was, you know, younger, let's say when I was my son's age, when I was like 12, 13, 14, 15, like my mom would be like, 
you're not allowed to come home until the streetlights are on. So (laughs) we would be biking around and we would be getting into like all sorts of like shenanigans and we would just occupy ourselves until it like the streetlights came on and it was kind of dinner time. And then my mom would like expect me home. But that doesn't happen. I mean, I know it still does happen. I'm not saying that that's been completely eradicated, but I think that it's much, uh, you know, there's been memes where I've seen, you know, like moms going in and saying play outside and then like they literally just get like a a cord extender to like bring their you know their joystick or whatever outside but they're still (laughs) like playing you know like you know whatever it is mario or whatever whatever they're playing so yeah Yeah. it's interesting how things change and shift over time as i as i as i get in my wise old years i've noticed (laughs) (laughs) no it's so true like i i feel like uh, there's this, you're, I think you're hit it nail on the head there that it's the social media. It's the seeing, you know, before you didn't have access to the the volume of news and tragedy that was happening before. So, you know, I, I've talked to people now and it's like, yeah, well, you know, you can't do that now because you see all the things kids are getting kidnapped and all this stuff. And it's like, well, I don't think that any of that's happening any more than it was before. It's just that you see it the day that it happens and you see multiple reports of that a day. And the more you look at it, actually, the more social media will continue showing it to you. So you're kind of just confirming your own fears. So it's like, I don't really, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you that I don't think generally speaking that the world is a more dangerous place for children. I mean, I think there's other new dangers like, you know, social media, for instance, is, is a newer Correct. type of danger that we didn't have when we were younger. But yeah. um, in terms of going out and like into the world and playing, and stuff. I don't think uh, it's more dangerous. I think it's just that our our level of fear has definitely increased, especially during these, you know, COVID and all these more recent events, I think have heightened people's fears uh, in a lot of different, you know, areas of their lives. So I think, you know, the, the parenting thing is just another area where we want to try to, you know, maybe overprotect a little too much. And I like your comment about uh, pushing kids to adapt because it, that is how we grow like to with mm-hmm. it, as you mentioned, within certain limits. Right. We don't want to yeah. be pushing them so that they're like, Mom, please can I have some food. I need water. You know, we want to make sure <laughs> yeah. that we're doing it in a reasonable and stepwise manner. And I think mm-hmm. that leads beautifully into the conversation that I wanted to have with you today. Having the mm-hmm. moniker of the ketologist, I think that we can have a really robust and really juicy conversation around how the ketogen how the ketogenic diet can bring about uh adaptability and when we talk about of course uh, metabolic adaptation uh, and sort of flexible we'll say a uh, use of substrates so being able to mm-hmm. very easily be glycolytic or lipolytic very easily being able to use sugar as your substrate or, or glycogen um, or being able to uh, you know pull the triacylglycerides from let's say the adipose tissue and then use that or you know create ketone bodies and I think that there's um, a conversation to be had around the benefits of that adaptability so let's let's maybe start Start. Um, uh, let's start a little bit with just, I mean, people, if you've listened to my podcast for more than one episode, you know that I'm a big fan of keto, but just so we lay a very basic groundwork, what is your definition of the ketogenic diet? Yeah, that's that's a that used to be a lot easier question to answer than it is yeah, now. I feel yeah. like it's really changed uh, since I've gotten into the space. But I, I like I typically subscribe to the idea that the ketogenic diet is more of a metabolic state than it is a diet because I think when you say ketogenic diet, you fall into the the 
what used to be where it was like keto is this defined set of macronutrients that's 70 to 75% fat, 20 to 25% protein, five to 10% carbohydrates. And what we're, we're coming to find out is that that, that doesn't, you know, that's, that's an effective strategy. And actually for most people who are just coming into, um, you know, a keto diet from a state of just like general insulin resistance, you will see improvements doing that. But what we're seeing now over the years is that it, you really can personalize this diet for different goals. You know what the version that you follow at the start of keto, when you have 50 pounds to lose might be different than what you follow when you, you know, are, are at your goal weight and have a different goal. Or, you know, if you're a woman, you're probably going to be following a different uh, version of a keto diet. And even within the con, you know, we talked, you've talked about this a lot when you came on my show, but even within like the context of a menstrual cycle, you might be following a different version of that diet at different, you know, periods of, of the cycle. Um, if your goal is to build muscle or to you know maximize endurance performance, you're going to follow a different versions. So I like to look at it more of a metabolic state of, you know, you're when you are in a state of ketosis, you have elevated ketones and you have lower blood sugar. So that the way I look at it is, is that it's a diet, it's a nutritional strategy that gets you to that end goal of elevated ketones and lower blood sugar. And and on the ketone side of it, you know, the degree at which you want to have those elevated again is going to be dependent on the goal. So um, even within that recommendation, I would wouldn't say that, you know, oh, there's an optimal ketone level to be considered keto or in ketosis. I think that that also changes based on the individual and the goal. So I really do think it's best to just simplify it as keto is a metabolic state, elevated ketones, controlled blood sugar. Beautifully said. And I'll even just add to that with the ketone body conversation. I even think I don't I don't have any studies yet, but just on clinical observation, women can't punch out high levels of ketones all the time. And specifically, mm-hmm. you know, you overlay, you mentioned the menstrual cycle, which I was on and we'll, we'll give a plug uh, to your podcast uh, as well. We'll make sure that there's a link in the show notes for people mm-hmm. to go and check you out because you do such great work and I'm not blowing sunshine, but you were one of my yeah. favorite people to have interviewed me because it was so obvious that you had read the book and that you had prepared questions that were different than what I had previously been asked. So, you know, you kind of go on, you go on a book tour and, you know, people kind of ask you the same questions, which is great, which is great. You know, I'm not, that's fine. Um, but there was a level deeper, uh, that you went on. So really, really highly recommend your podcast. It's great. Um, thank you. Yeah. Really, really well done. But I, I think with the ketone, the ketone piece there, um, I have found that women, it's very hard for them generally to punch out higher than one millimole. Like they'll kind of be Mm. like, I'm sort of doing trace. Like if they're, let's say they're watching their urine, you know, they're doing urine sticks or they're doing the keto mojo or something like they might get trace on that urine strip or it's like 0.5, you know, and they're like, is that enough? And I'm like, well, if we talk to Volick and Finney, they would say, yeah, like they would say, yeah, you've, you've, you've punched out enough, but it's higher. It's harder to get above the one for women. And then again, follicular phase versus luteal phase, luteal phase. I almost never see above one with most women, my follicular phase. Like if you're in like the first two weeks of the cycle, you can get to one. If you're like pushing it, maybe you're fasting and you know, maybe you're doing a bit more caloric restriction, that kind of thing, but very difficult. I have found generally, and I don't think that there's been a sex difference study yet on, or maybe there has, and I'm not aware. And if I, if there has, please somebody forward me the article because I would love to see it. Um, But Mm -hmm. I don't think that we've seen because typically you'll see the like 0.5 millimole per liter sort of like you you just have a ticket into the room. (laughs) You know, like that's just you're just starting and then it can kind of go up to like two, three and then, you know, maybe beyond that we're getting a little bit uh, aggressive. But for women, I find that they kind of hover on the lower end of that bell curve. Like it's really Mm -hmm. uh, I know I've seen, uh, you know, like. Jamie, uh, Dr. Jamie Seaman, who 
Mm-hmm. If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, is the medical director for BioCoach, which is the T-shirt that Kristen's wearing, which we'll talk about yeah. today as well. Uh, so I know I've seen her readouts. Like she's, I've seen her hired. Like I've seen her at 1.5. I've seen her at two. But I think that uh, a lot of women generally have a harder time punching out higher ketones. I don't know if you've noticed that or if that's mm-hmm. that's an observation that you've made generally. On- Definitely. Yeah, I definitely have. And I, I mean, I think just overall, there's a lot of metabolic differences between men and women. Uh, there's differences in the rate at which each gender will see results. Um, but on the ketone side, you know, I do think there's a reason why women see lower numbers and, and we can get into that. But I do think it's worth mentioning that ketone readings are very confusing because they change. You know, we t- you talk, you already mentioned that there's a lot of different ways to measure. You can measure pee, you can measure blood, you can measure breath. Acetone, um, yeah, gener- breath, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, gen- generally speaking, I think blood is probably your, your most accurate uh, with breath being a close second, urine being, you know, probably the most inaccurate. And, um, and I think what we see is that when you, most of us, you know, it's not our normal metabolic state. If you're following the standard American diet to, to be in a state of ketosis, like, you know, our ancestors, they, even if they were consuming carbohydrates, like fruit and everything like that, they were a lot more active. They were probably more close to a calorie deficit. They were going longer periods of times without eating and their carbon take was relatively low. So, but even though they were consuming carbohydrates, they would still probably maintain a mild state of ketosis, meaning that their body was accustomed to having these ketones present and to utilizing them. Whereas today, you know, we wake up in the morning, we, you know, eat carbs first thing in the morning, uh, spike our blood sugar, suppress ketone production. We eat late at night, uh, kind of lower shortening that window of no food that kind of prevents us. Like most people never get to a point of having any sort of ketones present. And one of the things we know is that, you know, we talk a lot about with glucose, how glucose has a transporter that's required to get glucose into the cell. And, you know, insulin has to, you know, open up that transportation and everything. Well, ketones actually have their own mechanism. They have what we're called the MCT transporters. So not MCT oil, but uh, monocarboxylate transporters that are responsible for shuttling ketones out of our blood and into our cells to be used for energy. And, one of the things we know from research, and this is more looking at cell culture studies, it's a little bit harder to study this in a, in a human, but we see that it takes time from the, the point where the cell is exposed to ketones and to when the cell actually takes in those ketones. So you can see that how, you know, a lot of people, when they start a ketogenic diet, you know, within a few days, they, they'll start showing elevated ketones. And within a couple of weeks, they might start seeing really high numbers. You'll hear people, um, you know, 1.0, 1.5. Some people, you know, usually men, as you were highlighting, but get up to above two. Um, but then we see as they continue following the diet, their numbers kind of start tapering back a little bit. And I think, you know, understanding the the MCT transporter conversation, it's that, you know, you're measuring your blood. So you're, you're seeing what's circulating in the blood. But as those transporters get better at taking those ketones out of the blood and into the cell, now we would expect to see less ketones circulating in the blood. So those numbers might come down, even though you're producing. And and there's also, I think, something to be said about ketone uh, production efficiency of, you know, your body at the beginning doesn't know, you know, this guy's never not ate for six you know hours before. Like, how long is he going to go for? I might need to produce a ton, but then the body starts getting a little bit more used to your eating schedule and knows that it doesn't need to produce as many. So maybe you're more tightly coupled with the amount you're producing versus the amount that you're utilizing. So there's just a lot going on that can make those numbers confusing. So I always like to tell people like, you, you know, if you're in ketosis, I think a better reading, like 
testing your blood is great. I think it's a good way to figure out what your optimal ketone level is based on like how you feel, but really that way you feel, I think is the best marker of you being in ketosis. Like if you're sitting at 0.4 millimolars of blood ketones and you're feeling mental clarity, energy, you're not hungry. Um, chances are you're, you're definitely in a state of ketosis and things are going really well for you. Um, so that's why I try not to get hung up on the numbers. I mean, even sitting at like for myself, if I wake up and I'm, you know, 0.3, uh, in the morning, you know, I like, that's a number that I feel really good when I'm at 0.3, I don't really feel the need to necessarily shoot a lot higher. Um, but, but as it relates to women, I think there are a lot of reasons why women, uh, may have a little bit harder of a time. Um, you know, I think the, there's this kind of this evolutionary, um, component of it, this, and and I'm curious if you've seen any difference in ages of women struggling with ketone levels, because what it seems like is that women, especially in their reproductive years, there's a desire for the body to, to not want to burn that stored fat, right? There's a desire to, you know, keto state of ketosis is a little bit, I don't like saying survival or starvation because it makes it kind of gives it a bad connotation, but evolutionarily the process exists to help provide us with energy during periods where we don't have it. And I think that for a woman in her reproductive years, the body doesn't want to be burning a lot of stored energy because that's, you know, there's an intent for that stored energy, evolutionarily speaking, whether or not, you know, you're, you're engaging in and trying to um, have a baby or not. It's just that I think that's what's going on. So I think there's a component there. I would love to see a study, not only looking at the gender differences, but also ages within that, because what I've tend to notice is that older women, um, you know, women that are maybe, maybe like post menstrual cycle, they're like, they, they end up seeing better ketone levels than what I see with younger women. Have you, have you noticed that as well? Yes. I was just going to say, I think that women in their reproductive years are typically more defensive of their fat stores. So we, we tend to, you know, and just following that through line, you know, of course you pull your ketone, essentially the ketone bodies come from your triglycerides, which are the storage form in the adipocyte. So if the woman Mm. under the influence of a higher estrogen environment is more defensive of her fat stores, then it is going to be harder for her to pull the triacylglyceride and then do the cleaving and then, you know, the pass, the second pass through the liver before Mm -hmm. the ketones are produced. And I do agree, like one of the beautiful things, and this is why I want to redefine menopause and postmenopause for women is that it has been really painted as this, you know, you are just becoming this nothing. You're going to just wear sweaters, uh, you know, those little sweater cardigans <laughs> and maybe, you know, whatever, you know, if you like sweater mm-hmm. cardigans, I like them too. So like, no, I'm not throwing, <laughs> like, you know, not that I'm, I'm just trying to be trying to sort of paint this idea that especially in, you know, Hollywood and movies where any woman over 50, let's say, is just this dried up, you know, wrinkled and, you know, loss of life. She hasn't, she serves no more purpose. And I would really love to repaint this time as a second spring. You know, we really Mm -hmm. are coming into our own and the benefits of being in menopause is you don't have to worry about optimizing for your fertility. That time Mm -hmm. is gone. It's a, it's, you know, an old chapter, let's say in, in your book of life and you behave more, we'll say male like, so you're able to get some of these higher punch out some of these higher ketone numbers, let's say even 
you know, it used to be thought that if you don't have any, uh, if you haven't built up any muscle, let's say up until the point of menopause, then you're just like absolutely screwed. And that's not true. You can completely, you can completely grow and, and build muscle in your menopausal years. And mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about some of the, uh, we'll say catastrophic, uh, ligament injuries that can happen again under that cycling, um, levels of estrogen, which do have like the, you know, estrogen causes more, let's say ligamentous laxity, which kind of makes the ligaments a bit loosey goosey. And so Mm -hmm. we can see at certain points of the cycle, and we see this a lot in athletes where we tend to see more ligamentous injuries. And it's been studied in the literature to sort of look at you know, the AC joint and the, um, the ACL joint, pardon me, not the, not the, not the, um, AC joint in the shoulder, but the ACL joint, uh, or the ACL ligament rather, um, we tend to see more injury there under that pre-ovulatory surge of estrogen. But as a menopausal woman, you don't have that. So it's mm-hmm. also your injuries be- start to look again, more male like, so we don't see more, ligamentous injuries in menopause, we actually tend to see more muscular injuries the way that we see Ah, in men, right? Men will get hamstring Mm -hmm. pulls and, you know, whatever. And and the same is true uh, for women. Typically, now I'm painting general strokes here, but typically in our menopausal years, women tend to get more muscular strains and sprains rather than ligamentous ones because that estrogen, that estrogen environment has now been attenuated. It's lower. So we don't have that impact on the ligaments. So I do see a difference, you know, kind of coming back to your original mm-hmm. um, thought pattern around the difference between being able to punch out higher ketones for women across the arc of their life. So reproductive women who are, and this includes perimenopausal women, because you, even though your estrogen's kind of all over the place, it's still higher than let's say a menopausal woman's estrogen levels are. Um, mm-hmm. Your ketone bodies expect them to be lower. Because one of the things I always hear is, oh, I'm failing on the, I'm not doing it well. Like my ketones are only traced or my ketones are only point. And it's like, that's for a woman, a very good number based on Mm -hmm. my clinical experience, kind of what I typically see. Yeah. 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 I think so too. Well, that's super fascinating on the injury side of it. That's not something that, uh, that I had ever really looked into. So I think that's, that's fascinating, but, um, but yeah, I think you're right. It's just that there's, there's this kind of this weird expectation that's, and I think it's one of, there's a lot of reasons why I think that, uh, there's a lot of recommendations being made against women doing keto now, but I think that's one of them is because you know, women try it and they have this expectation being set for them that they should be achieving this high number, or, you know, maybe they're doing it with a partner and, you know, their partner is achieving a lot higher numbers than them. So they're kind of doing this comparison thing and they're wondering what's going wrong. I always think it's important to highlight with people that like, you know, I think we've always posed keto as this, like, Oh, it's this like extra, you know, next level thing. Your brain is, uh, you know, firing at 110 capacity and, and, you know, your energy is like through the roof. And there's some truth to that. Like, I think if, you know, through like, if you do, or if you're able to kind of push your ketones to a certain level, you can achieve this state, but at baseline, really what's, what's trying to be accomplished here is that you're trying to replace glucose for energy. Correct. So you don't need to have uh, you know, unless you're doing this therapeutically, like you're trying to mitigate seizures or, you know, you're trying to, uh, maybe you have some sort of like uh, brain cancer and you're trying to have ketones kind of come to the rescue there. Um, but outside of that, you're just trying to replace glucose for fuel. So there's not really a need to be producing a ton of these excess ketones, you know, just getting to the point where you're meeting your fuel uh, demands through ketones is allowing you to get the benefit of reducing your carbohydrate consumption, lowering your glucose and insulin levels, uh, you know, lowering inflammation, some of those other things that come with it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be this thing where, you know, even, even if you felt 
as good as you did before or slightly better than you did before, that would be a win uh, because of what else is going on in the body. You're improving your mitochondrial function. Uh, you're, you're giving your mitochondria a break from, you know, metabolizing all of this glucose and everything. So I think we just have to change our expectation a little bit. Like, I think that the what's promoted as keto is, is kind of more of like a biohacking version of keto. And, and to be honest, it is more of the keto that I kind of shoot for because with weight loss, not really being a goal of mine, uh, my metabolic health in pretty good shape. Like when I'm doing keto, I actually am trying to, to optimize for the highest ketone levels for productivity or endurance performance with like, you know, exercise and stuff like that. So it is, and, but you know, I might do things like add intermittent fasting in, or, uh, you know, use some exogenous ketones or something to push them up to, to that higher level. But that's just because of where my goals are. If you're doing this because you want to become more insulin sensitive, because you want to, you know, just try to improve your metabolic health, we don't need ketones to be through the roof. So I think we just have to kind of lower that expectation and, and, and realize that that's not necessarily the primary goal of keto. Yeah. And as you said, I think there's different stages of keto, right? If you are doing mm -hmm. a, let's say a therapeutic intervention of the ketogenic diet, because you do want to lose weight and that is a goal for yeah. you, that is sort of stage one, let's say. And then you get to maybe where you are, or maybe where I am, where, for example, this morning I had a leg leg day. And I was like, I'm going to need some exogenous ketones for this workout. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Because I'm trying to optimize for my performance. And I was like, I feel like having a PR. I feel like, I feel yeah. like busting through a PR today. So had some exogenous ketones, shout out to HVMN, love their product. Yes. Um, and love me too. I think I got some back here actually. Yeah. Got a little I don't know if this one's out on the market yet. It might be a little secret, but I got a little shot of it. Nice. Took it before the show. Oh, I love it. And actually, on your suggestion, when I was on your show, you're like, hey, do you ever take, because I was saying to you, I love uh, exogenous ketones right before a workout. You're like, you know what you should also do? You should probably also take them before a podcast or before a speaking event. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. And I've been, I've taken you up on that. And it is, yeah, it feels like I'm firing on all cylinders. And there are times for a woman who is in her reproductive years, like myself, where we naturally are firing on all cylinders. It tends to be in the follicular phase. Again, pre-ovulation, we have surge of estrogen, surge of testosterone. The brain tends to be firing on all cylinders during that week. And then because mm -hmm. of those sort of ebbs and flows of estrogen and testosterone to a lesser extent, progesterone as well, um, taking some exogenous ketones, let's say in the luteal phase, if you, if you have to do a podcast interview, let's say, or you have to, you know, you are speaking engagement or you're presenting, or you have some sort of deadline, taking some exogenous ketones there can help the brain, uh, uh, fire, let's, uh, you know, I'm, sim I'm simplifying it, but help it fire on all cylinders because the motor cortex generally in the luteal phase for a woman is less excitable because we don't have the amount of like that surge of estrogen, let's say that we, that we see in the follicular phase. Yeah. And I think the, the mechanism for how the ketones, like, you know, exogenous ketones, I think it generally get a pretty bad reputation, but the, the mechanism for how they can help, I think is really interesting because so, you know, we look at our, our brain metabolism and we see that our brain, you know, cause we were just talking about increasing your productivity and, and being better on podcasts and stuff. The brain will take up ketones in proportion to their availability in the blood, which is, that's maybe a confusing way to, to understand it. But essentially what it means is that like, if you, if we provide glucose to our body, our glucose gets in and Dr. Stephen Kunain published a great study on this. And he has a great uh, visualization of it where 
uh, glucose gets pulled into the brain based on the energy demands of the brain. So the brain is only going to pull glucose in based on how much energy it needs to complete baseline functions. So you can't just like eat a bowl of ice cream and provide like more energy to your brain and get like a brain boost from that. Like you might get like a dopamine hit from that, but you're not going to get like an actual increase in brain energy from doing that. Whereas ketones actually get pushed into the brain based on their availability in the blood. So if we increase our blood ketone levels, then we increase the energy that's actually available to our brain. So, and, and, you know, one of the things we know too, is that a lot of the other cells in our bodies will preferentially not use ketones because it's so beneficial for the brain to use them. Our, our muscles and everything will kind of try to use whatever glucose and fat is available and then kind of save those ketones for the brain. So that's where the exogenous ketones can be really helpful. You know, if you can get a, a boost of 0.5 to 1.0 millimolar in your blood for a two hour period, you're going to notice a lot, you know, from feelings of euphoria to increase energy to, you know, productivity, focus, any of those things, you're going to notice that. And it's simply because, like you said, firing on, on all cylinders. I think that's a great way to look at it. You're giving your, your brain all of the energy that it needs to complete the tasks that you're, you're and actually maybe surpassing that energy demand as well. So now you're potentially opening up, you know, the opportunity for your brain to do things that it wouldn't be able to do before. So that's been my favorite use of it. Like the, the endurance, you know, I think like exogenous ketones first really hit the market popularity for endurance performance. And I know like with the HVMN product, like a lot of tour de France teams are using that. Um, and I've used it for endurance too. And, and exercise, I think it's great, but the brain boosting side of it's really the side that gets me excited because it's like, I don't want to have to, you know, I don't want to drink coffee all the time. Uh, I don't want to go crazy with like nootropics. It's like right. having something like this, right. um, that's a little bit more natural is, is nice. And what you're talking about, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're talking about a demand driven process versus a supply driven process, right? So when we're mm -hmm. talking, you said, you know, if you have a bowl of ice cream, that doesn't mean that you're going to start firing all just because the supply is there doesn't mean that your brain is going to necessarily take it up, but that's not, it doesn't seem to be the case with ketones. So we might, um, we might conclude, let's say that glucose might be more of a demand driven process and ketone ketone uptake is much more of a supply driven process. Would you say that that's correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great way to look at it. And there's probably some reasons why it's built in that way too. You know, I think we know that the brain, especially as we age has a tendency to become more insulin resistant. And we know that insulin resistance already, you know, naturally occurs through uh, chronic exposure of glucose, you know, to our cells. So I think that naturally there's gotta be some component of that too, where it's the brain knows like, you know, Hey, this creature just keeps blasting me with glucose. Like I need to probably limit the, the amount that I'm letting get to my brain. Right. Um, whereas there's this understanding, I mean, when the brain takes in ketones, it's not just energy. It's, um, one really interesting thing that happens is, is that the glucose that's available, you know, you're still going to always have glucose. You talk about demand supply driven processes. I know gluconeogenesis always gets brought up with that conversation too. Um, but that process, you know, even if you're not consuming carbs, you're always going to be producing uh, some amount of glucose in your body. And one of the interesting things that happen is that when your brain is metabolizing ketones, that it will shuttle some of the glucose into these different metabolic pathways that can increase like our natural antioxidant production. Um, so it's really cool that like, I mean, one, like we know glucose creates a lot of oxidant, um, I'll say inflammation to make it seem easy. It's oxidative stress. Yes. Uh, reactive oxygen species, but just for simplification, uh, when your cells are metabolizing a lot of glucose, you increase the amount of, um, oxidative stress or, or inflammation that is occurring. So when the brain's metabolizing ketones over glucose, you actually get a double whammy from like a neuroinflammation standpoint of you're reducing the amount that's being produced of oxidative stress, but you're also increasing your natural production of 
antioxidants. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, we see a big boost in, in long-term brain health. Um, there's hasn't been studies as much, but there's, you know, there's a, a recent review that just came out, for instance, that was looking at all of the available literature on keto for Alzheimer's. And there's, you know, a lot of benefit from the, the few, you know, studies that are out at this point, we're seeing a lot of positive results on this. And it's because of that fact that like it, one of the reasons there's, there's several reasons, but one of the reasons is this reduction in neuroinflammation that's coming from it. So ketones really are kind of this, this interesting, you know, magical molecule that it's, you know, we look at them as an energy substrate, but there's actually a lot of other things that they're providing for the body. Yeah. Love that. And I think that it, it warrants uh, maybe going into inflammation land a little bit, because I yeah. think that most people misunderstand the concept of inflammation. Uh, you know, they don't understand the, let's say the benefits that might, uh, or we'll say the different physiological processes, we'll say, uh, between short-term acute inflammation, things like exercise, which is an acute hormetic stressor, let's say, uh, and long-term low-grade chronic inflammation, which is what I believe you're talking about here. So when we have chronic low-grade inflammation, this is going to induce, as you mentioned, a metabolic switch to this we'll say energetically and if, you know, uh, it's an, an efficient way of producing energy, oxidative phosphorylation to fast acting, but less uh, efficient aerobic glycolysis. And this is what you're talking about, where we're going to increase those reactive oxygen species. We're going to reduce the insulin sensitivity. And then of course these effects, you know, then the net net essentially is like this reduced glucose availability and therefore reduced cellular energy as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's, yeah, I think it is an important distinction to make. I think, you know, uh, inflammations like stress and cortisol, where it gets this bad reputation, everybody thinks that in any amount, it's not good for you. Uh, inflammation is a good thing acutely, as you mentioned, you know, if you have an injury, inflammation is going to help with recovery. If you're trying to recover from exercise, um, you know, that, that acute inflammation is actually the driver of the, ad, the, the positive adaptation that you're trying to accomplish. So this is the, the hormetic stressor that you're speaking of. So, you know, that, that part is a great thing, but it is, it's the chronic inflammation that is, is the issue. And, you know, mostly chronic inflammation is going to be driven by diet. It's, it's what we're putting in our bodies. that's going to be causing that. Uh, and, and you kind of get this, you know, it's, it's, you get it from a lot of different areas, even in the nutrition component, because there's, yeah, there's this component of if our cells are metabolizing a lot of glucose and we're using a lot of the, those metabolic pathways, uh, to, to metabolize that glucose, we're going to be creating a lot of this reactive oxygen species. So we're going to have a natural increase in our inflammation production, but then there's all the other things that come with it too. You know, there's the digestive distress that can, uh, you know, target an immune inflammation response where, you know, you are, uh, you're consuming certain foods. Maybe it's, uh, you know, you're overloaded on plant toxins or you're consuming some just different pro-inflammatory ingredients that are found in a lot of processed foods. Uh, now you're, you're causing your immune system to have a response to that. And that's driving up inflammation. So the inflammation can, can be produced in a lot of different ways, but interestingly enough, you know, if we get our diet under check, we, we start to see that really improve. You know, one of the, the more common markers that people will use for measuring systemic inflammation is high sensitivity C-reactive protein, or if on your blood test, you may see it as HSCRP. Um, that, you know, this number we tend to see improve on, you know, not, like we see it improve on a low carb keto diet. Um, but we especially see it improve on a low carb keto diet consisting of whole foods um, that have removed a lot of those inflammatory things. And I mean, it really is important. Like if you look at, you know, right now, I think insulin resistance has a lot of uh, it kind of has the stage right now. A lot of people are talking about insulin resistance and it, which is important because if you look at, you know, almost every chronic disease uh, or just chronic 
uh, sickness or, or things that are, you know, kind of complicating health for people. Insulin resistance is at the root of it, but also is inflammation. And the two do tend to come hand in hand. Um, you know, with some people, you know, there's a little bit of discrepancy is, is insulin resistance driving inflammation is inflammation driving insulin resistance. I think it's a little bit of both. You know, we know the inflamed cell is, is probably not uh, responding to insulin and, and glucose as well as it would if it, if it weren't inflamed. Yeah. Um, but we also know that, you know, insulin resistance is going to kind of drive up inflammation naturally. So it's actually probably going a little bit of both ways, but it's important because you, know, you can't have optimal health in a state of chronic inflammation. Yeah, agreed. And I, I think, um, I, you know, I can't remember. I think it was, I think it was Lane. I had Lane Norton on the show recently, and he was yeah. like, "If I said to you, uh, I'm gonna, we're gonna do this intervention, and you are going to see like atrial fibrillations, uh, you know, uh, th- like transient uh, changes in your thyroid hormone. We're gonna see all of these different very scary things. Would you recommend it to your patient?" And it was such a great question. I was like, "Of course not." And he's like, "Well, I, what I'm talking about is exercise, you know." Yeah, <laughs> and it's right. it's a really funny thing because we really uh, conflate the two, like acute stress, acute stress and inflammation that has a start and an end point. This is, mm-hmm. you know, it is an adaptive stress. It is a stress, EU stress. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be, it, this is going to help you get better over time, even though it might suck, like my hip thrusters sucked this morning, but I yeah. know that next time I get back there and I do that weight that I, I punched up today, it's going to be just a, a little, you know, a squeak easier. And I think that those mm-hmm. are the adaptations that we're really, that we're really after. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want. And if you don't like it, they will refund your money. No questions asked. And you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free Element T sample pack with any purchase. And I mm-hmm. wanted to I wanted to come back to gluconeogenesis because you mentioned it. And I think that yeah. in the context of the the ketogenic community, I think that protein is often uh, and I will say with full transparency and honesty, I was on the bandwagon where I was like too much protein bad. I was like, can't I was like team Walter Longo. <laughs> it was like yep. team blue zones. And I used to be used to be there uh, since I have since switched teams. I'm sorry, Walter. But um, and I do I do love his work. I think that he's done a lot of important work. So I'm not trying to not trying to bash him anyway, but I do think that he's missed the mark with protein and aging. Like I do, mm-hmm. you know, we've been talking Agreed. about insulin and, and insulin insensitivity. And I think that as we age, as you mentioned, the brain gets a little bit more insulin resistant. The body gets a little bit more insulin resistant. If you are not strategically putting in either a mechanical or a chemical stimulus to overcome that. So the mechanical stimulus would be the weights, let's say, or the cardiovascular work. And then the chemical stimulus would be, you know, the foods that you're putting into your body, the types of food, the macronutrient split, that kind of thing. And I think that with protein specifically, I think that a lot of people in the ketogenic community 
get it wrong. And I remember when I was first kind of talking about higher protein, I was almost scared to do it. You know, I was almost <laughs> nervous to come out and like that. I think women need more protein that I, you know, and this is specifically for women because this is sort of my niche or niche, if you will, where I would see women who were on a, like that 20 to 25%, as you mentioned before, you know, they were on that ketogenic, like that macro split, let's say, and they were on it for years. And then we'd look at their thyroid and I'll be like, oh my God, this reverse T3, we have to get a handle on this. And just Mm -hmm. changing some of the macros a little bit. So maybe bringing them up from like a 20% to about a 40%. That's kind of the number that I like um, for, for women. Uh, 40% of their total calories coming from protein seems to really bring the thyroid, we'll say, back online. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about protein, maybe some misconceptions about protein in the ketogenic space. And then we can come back to women because we always see, we always seem to come back there. But let's, let's talk a little yeah. bit about protein in general. Are you team protein or are you team low protein? Yeah. So I'm definitely, definitely team protein. And like you, my stance has changed over the years. Um, when I first started getting into, I think, you know, I think it's a natural progression. Most people go through like, you know, nowadays it's because I think the way that the general recommendations are for 20 to 25% protein, if you just Google keto, that's kind of what pops up. But even in the early days, like when we, you know, I I studied keto in a lab setting, like my grad school, like we were studying it, we were working in exercise science lab, we were reading all the research. Um, so, but even then we were making this, this confusion because we were looking at the early models of the keto diet that were for epilepsy and they were for, they're for different things. Right. Mm. So you, you were kind of trying to take that and then relate it to the stuff. Like we were studying athletes in our lab. So we're trying to like take this and relate it to over here, but it's way two different goals, two different populations. It's there's so much different stuff going on. So I was definitely team low protein for a while too. Um, with the same reason everybody else has of this fear that if you have too much protein, it's going to kick you out of ketosis. Um, and for you know anybody who this is a new conversation for, this is based on there is a process in the body, gluconeogenesis. We've mentioned it a couple of times. It's a process where our body will take non-carbohydrate substrate like amino acids from protein and convert them into glucose. And, and it's a process that does exist but the confusion is around how it gets activated. So a lot of people think that this is, we talked about supply and demand driven processes we talked about. Um, so a lot of people will think this gluconeogenesis is a supply driven process where if you have too much protein, the body will have no choice, but to convert that protein into glucose and then thus kick you out of ketosis. And there's a few things that are wrong with that, you know, idea The The first idea I think that's wrong is that a lot of people when they're figuring out, well, how much protein is enough protein? A lot of times we're just looking at studies that measure protein synthesis or or muscle protein synthesis, how much protein is required to stimulate that process, which is important. It's really, you know, we're talking about muscle here. Muscle is important for us to have. We can kind of get into that a little bit later, but um, that is an important thing, but it kind of misses the fact that protein is used for other things too. It's not just for muscle protein synthesis. You know, almost every process in our body requires amino acids to carry out the functions in our different bodily systems. So we can have, you know, the, you know, it's kind of, people have thought they're like, oh, 30 to 40, you know, I think it's 25 to 40 grams of protein is what they'll say is the most that you can tolerate in a feeding. And that's bit just based on that, you know, the studies show that if you go past that, you can't stimulate protein synthesis in a, in a way is kind of like a switch. You can't further stimulate it past it. So people think that that's the threshold, but it's likely probably more than that. So that's one, you know, I think that's one little misconception is, is the way that protein gets used. Um, but then, you know, one of the things that people will experience is that if they measure their glucose 
uh, or their ketones after having a higher protein feeding, you might notice higher glucose and lower ketone levels. And that kind of reaffirms this idea that like, oh, gluconeogenesis must be happening. But what people don't realize is that, you know, unless you're having a meal of just fat, you're going to see some change in your glucose and ketone levels. Um, but it's not because, you know, the amount of protein that you had has kicked you out of ketosis. It's just that your fuel substrate has changed. Your demand for producing ketones is probably less now because you've consumed food. Um, there's, there's a lot of different things going on there. So, you know, people will get kind and of let's that look affirmation. At Text. Let's look at like, okay, so maybe yeah. you do 30 minutes after, but what does it look like two hours after exactly, or three yeah. or four hours after, right? Like we absolutely know that your glucose levels are going to be very transient and there's going to be a flux, let's say, of glucose in your blood post post meal for about two hours or so. So yeah. I would be more, I would be more curious about maybe the 30 minute reading, but then I'd be like, let's check again at two hours and see where we are. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and even like, I mean, if you look at some of the studies that are done in like type two diabetics, which we'd probably consider to be kind of the most metabolically compromised people, um, even the glucose spike from them, from like massive protein feedings, like 50 to 60 grams of protein per, per feeding, maybe not massive to you and I, but generally speaking, most people consider that to be massive, um, only producing very minor increases in blood sugar. And that's in, and again, the, maybe the most meta, uh, metabolically compromised people. So we really, it just doesn't check out in the research that this is a problem. Um, but this misconception has created a lot of problems because even outside of the, the women aspect of it, uh, just generally speaking, you know, we know that muscle is important. And, and I think that, you know, you brought up the, the you brought up Walter Longo's research. And I think that that's it. I also agree that it misses the mark a little bit because it doesn't take into consideration the dangers of having low, low muscle mass as you get older. You know, the sarcopenia is a real thing. It happens as we get older, certain diseases will drive that. So, you know, to me, I think it'd be much better to be, you know, 90 years old with a little bit more muscle mass on me than to be 90 years old and be a stick. I think my quality of life is probably going to be better. Um, from a metabolic health perspective, we know that muscle is very metabolically active tissue. Uh, it metabolizes both, you know, a lot of glucose and stuff like that. So it's basically just a glucose dumping ground. So it's, there's a lot of benefit to carrying Which more muscle insulin mass. So, independent, we should also mention yes, as well, right? Yes. It's an insulin independent process via the glut for Yes. Yeah. That's a great point too. Yeah. Great, great addition there because, you know, you don't, again, if you're dealing with insulin resistance, you obviously don't want to be producing, a, you know, stimulating a lot of insulin production. So um, muscle is a way that you can, you know, still dispose of glucose independent of, of having to have that. So that's the issue with that low protein recommendation. There was a study that came out. It's been probably four years ago. Now they looked at men and women follow. It was like a 12 week study, men and women following a keto diet. I think they were doing, it was either the 20 or the 25% of their calories coming from protein and they were resistance training and both groups lost muscle, uh, from doing that. And I think they may have also been in a calorie deficit as well. Um, which, you know, is going to naturally make it a little bit, a little bit harder to gain muscle, not impossible, but a little bit harder to gain muscle. Um, but you know, that's, that's what we're risking here is that we're, you know, if you're keeping your protein low outside of all of the other stuff, there's all the other things again, that, that amino acids from protein play a role in just on the muscle side of things, you're losing that. And, and that's important for everybody. That's not just important for the person that wants to know, have like, you know, big arms and, and big legs and stuff like that. Like this is for the person, even the, the person that wants to be slim or trim or cut or whatever the, the phrases that people are throwing around now, you're still talking about muscle and you want to have that muscle, um, regardless of if you think you want to be bulky or not. So that's really what we're running into with these low protein recommendations is, is that people aren't getting that aspect of a ketogenic diet. 
And then and you also can't completely forget about the fact of what typically comes with protein rich foods like on a keto diet. If you're eating a lot of protein rich foods, most likely that's coming from red meat, which is the most nutrient dense food on the planet. So if you're eating less of that, you're lessening the opportunities for you to be increasing your micronutrient intake. Uh, and not only in your micronutrient intake, but micronutrients in their most bioavailable form for us as humans. So there's so many things that, you know, everybody thinks that the low protein is like, you know, that we like to check the box of like, oh, low protein will be anti-aging, you know, keep my blood sugar in check and that's it. And it's like, no, neither of those things are necessarily true. And then you're also going to miss out on all of these other benefits of that protein. So it's, it's a big concern. Yeah. I've talked about this with other guests on the show before and, uh, you know, eventually I think I would love to have Dan Butner, um, on the show to, to really get his perspective on it. But I know that, for example, when we see these centenarians and super centenarians in these so-called blue zones, um, and I'll say this with love because, um, you know, I have family members, let's say in Italy, um, and family in Greece. And <laughs> I, and I say this with love because I love these countries. I'm eventually going to probably retire, uh, in Italy or France or somewhere, but these places flub their numbers. Okay. So it was only up until recently that, you know, Italians and Greeks, I know were paying property tax because you could just throw it to your son or you could just transfer the name to your son. There's no property tax. You just pay off the mayor or whatever, you know, with the local person. And yeah. so there's a lot of, um, I want to say, cor I mean, there's corruption everywhere. So it's not just, you know, this is not a new thing, but a lot, because there are these, um, centenarian benefits, let's say, I know that there's changes on birth certificates, you know, in order to start receiving some of these government benefits as well. So I don't know mm -hmm. that that's, that's the whole picture that maybe, and maybe, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the administrative work is super crisp and clean. And we do just have a naturally higher centenarian and super centenarian population over there. And I would argue that it's not necessarily from the protein because exactly. I also know that, you know, with my, at least my, my children's grandparents, they grew up like in the mountains of Greece. They were poor. They couldn't mm -hmm. afford meat. Like that was a, that was a treat for them. You know, like they had, like they had farms and, you know, they would raise animals and stuff. And if they killed an animal, it would have to last them through the winter, you know? So mm -hmm. it was, it wasn't like, you know, they were choosing not to have meat. It was probably because they couldn't afford it. So there's mm -hmm. that. And then I also think that there's the community aspect, the sunshine, the natural movement, you know, the lack of, we'll say, um, and maybe it's less so now, but we'll say the lack of, uh, you know, genetically modified uh, crops and things like that. Whenever I have dairy mm -hmm. in Italy, I'm fine. If I have ice cream yeah. here, I am not happy. I like my gut yeah. is like, what did you give me? It doesn't matter if it's like a super swish, you know, gelato place, whatever. I go to Italy, I go stop at the side of the road and have a sandwich and a, and a, and a, a gelato and I'm totally fine. So there is mm -hmm. a difference in the quality of the food there. Um, as well. So I just, and I don't mean yeah. to poo poo all over his work, but it just, it doesn't, it doesn't quite add up for me. And maybe there's something fundamental that I'm misunderstanding and I'm open to being wrong about this. So that's why I would love to have him on the show for him to color in some of these areas that I'm not quite getting, but we get mm -hmm. more sarcopenic as we age. As you mentioned, the muscle gets more resistant to growing unless the mechanical stimulus is there and the chemical stimulus is there. And then two, just to kind of add 
on to what you were saying, you know, because of, of my background, like neuromusculoskeletal health is my thing. We also know that bone density follows muscles. Like we have that fibro, fibroblastic growth factor. So whenever you mm-hmm. are building muscle tissue, you are also promoting bone density. And one of the most catastrophic things that can happen is a what we call a foosh injury or F-O-O-S-H, fall on outstretched hand. So if you fall, let's say you slip on some ice, you have a foosh injury, you know, maybe you fracture or something happens with the wrist, or maybe you fall on your hip, even more deleterious, and you fracture the hip. Well, the likelihood of you coming back from that kind of injury, uh, whether it's, you know, you fracture the pubic rami or, or whatever, wherever the fracture is, very, very difficult to come back from a hip fracture. And we also know, you know, kind of we, we talk, we've been talking about brain performance. A hip fracture has almost a 70% predictive rate of cognitive decline in the individual who sustained it. Because what ha- you know tends to happen is like a 70 or 80 year old, let's say male or female, uh, we have this, uh, you know, catastrophic injury and then they're immobile right because in order mm-hmm. to secu- in order to stabilize the hip because you can die if that if that doesn't doesn't get fixed you are completely immobile so the lack mm-hmm. of proprioception the lack of balance the muscle loss all of those things are inputs to the brain proprioception we can kind of go down this nerd you know this nerd vertical if you want but this is yeah. like the sixth sense. This is our unconscious sense where we are in space. If I said to you, Chris, close your eyes and make a 90 degree angle with your elbow, you could do it because the proprioceptive input and the distortion of the Golgi tendon organ, let's say in the, in the elbow is going to tell your brain where it is in space. So when you lose that proprioceptive input, good luck walking without a walker. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. And then you have all like that motor input, those afferents that are coming up to the brain now start to degenerate. So it's like when we think about muscle building, like, yes, you're going to look great in a bikini (laughs) and a tank top and whatever, like all of those vain things. And I'm a vain woman, like I want to look good too, but it's also about preventing some of these things that can totally take you out and not just take you out from like a training perspective. Like you're taking out cognition, you're taking out independent living, you're taking out all of these things that we, you know, as 30 and 40 year olds, we are like, whatever, like that's not a really big deal. But I think that we don't understand that as we age, it's a nonlinear decline. If you're not doing something about it, the lifting, the nutrition, the stress management, then, you know, the non-exercise activity thermogenesis, there's an exponential decrease. And, and like humans don't think exponentially. We think linearly, right? Like I should lose one mm-hmm. pound a week forever. That's how we think. Yeah. We don't think, oh, it, I'll lose like 3.3 of a pound and then I'll lose two pounds and nothing will happen for a couple of weeks. It's very nonlinear. And this in the same yeah. vein, your aging process, I think if you're not doing anything about it, is also nonlinear. And there's just like mm-hmm. a cliff that you're going to fall off of if you're not being careful. Yeah. And I think the other thing that that's, that's a really good point. And I think the thing that it doesn't take into consideration either is quality of life. I mean, yes, let, let's just say, for example, that all of this research was correct and that lower protein led to you living longer, but would you rather live to a hundred and, you know, be r- running the risk of falling and breaking your hip, having to be in a wheelchair for the, you know, the last few years of your life, uh, because of this risk of not being able to, you know, manage walking without falling, Um, you know, the fact that you don't have very much muscle and you're not disposing of that glucose. Now, maybe you've created more opportunities for you to be, um, you know, insulin resistant in the brain and have, you know, neurodegenerative disease. Like if for me, 
if dying at 85 means that I'm dying, you know, with like, uh, being able to, to do the activities that I love doing and my brain is all there. Like I, I would take, even if that, if that was the case and the protein was going to make me die sooner, I'm going to take what's going to come with that higher protein consumption and that better, more years of quality of life. I mean, I know, you know, family members and stuff that for, you know, 10, 15 years have been living, you know, with these, like just not being able to be active, not being able to get around on their own, uh, cognitive decline, you know, accelerating every single year on a cocktail and it's like, of medication. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. You know, and then every, everybody around you is like trying to take care of you and stuff. It's like, I would rather stay as functional and, and healthy and have a good quality of life as possible to a point like living longer isn't necessarily better if it leads to like a lower quality of like, yeah, if you can live to a hundred and be all there and, you know, and everything else is great, like totally do it. But it, to live to a hundred, just to, to like check that box and, and, you know, have a miserable last 10 to 15 years of your life doesn't really seem best to me. So I always like to take that into consideration with this because, you know, with research, like, you know, we're look, we're talking about combination of of worm research and rat research and human research and yeast. you know epidi- you know yeast <laughs> yeah. and you know epidemiological studies of us studying these blue zones where maybe people are misreporting things or or maybe the scientists have you know their different biases. Like it's going to be hard for us ever to really know. So it's like you know even if we can't necessarily figure out the solution or the answer to that question, I think we can look at it through this aspect of knowing that your quality of life is going to be a heck of a lot better consuming more protein than it's going to be if you consume less protein. I think that's pretty cut and dry. I love that. And I think that, you know, for the women that are listening to this, I think that it's important for you, if you haven't already, to consider lifting really heavy weights. Yeah. You know, again, mm-hmm. uh, again, I, I feel like a broken record, but I will die on this hill. Um, <laughs> I will die functionally without any medication on this hill uh, where I feel like women, we really need to get over. There's this thing with like meat and lifting weights. Like, oh, those are like men things like man fire, huh? you know, like men yeah. meat fire yeah. and like lifting heavy weights is like a guy thing. Uh, and certainly men have the capacity just phenotypically having more, you know, testosterone than women do. However, yeah. uh, I do think that it is very, very important. And women can like for our size and our body weight, like, you know, and, and this is just my own observation, at least with lifting and coaching. I have clients where, you know, we have them on a, on a lifting program, let's say. And for I, I don't know why, but the glutes, like women's legs, we can. So I this morning I was doing hip thrusters. I was doing 355 pounds, which is a good Damn. number. You know, I want yeah. I want to get it over 400. That's kind of my like goal is like over 400. But relative yeah. to my weight, you know, that's like almost three times my weight. Yeah. Right. So when we look at that, rel- like I don't see guys doing hip thrusters, let's say, or maybe I maybe I do. I just haven't looked at it close enough, but. I don't see them doing 3x their weight on on for for whatever reason I find women are able to really develop the strength in their glutes and I think that this is um and of course you're going to just you're going to have a nice butt let's just be honest you're going to look right. in your jeans and your bikinis and all of that but I, I think it's an important consideration for us to be lifting weights as we age which will necessitate a higher protein intake generally now the yeah. the regular I will say the classic uh recommendation is about a gram of protein per ideal, like, you know, per, per, uh, uh, pound of body weight. Do you like that recommendation or are yours higher or lower than that? I think generally speaking, that's a good place to start, but I, I think from there, you know, it's, 
the more you can be intuitive with your body and then make adjustments accordingly. Like I probably go a little bit higher than that for myself, yeah. just based off of, you know, observing, like I, you know, I am pretty active. Like there'll be some days where I'll, I play basketball like three, four times a week. And I might also lift on those same days. So it's like a lot of activity going on where I'm, I've noticed that if I have, you know, if I stick just at like one gram per pound, I might have a little bit more soreness and not recovery as well as I will. Or I might start noticing that I'm actually like losing, you know, some weight, losing some muscle if I don't consume more protein. But then if I go, you know, the last two or three weeks, I was traveling a lot. I was probably only, you know, extra, like I was only lifting maybe one, once or twice a week. Um, you know, that protein demand of, of around a gram per pound or even a little bit less uh, seems to be sufficient for me. So I think for most people, like start at a gram. And then from there, just making, you know, making a, a read and an adjustment accordingly. If you notice after a week that like, you know, you're going to have general soreness from working out, especially if you've never done it before. But if you're, you know, noticing that you're sore three, four days after, and it's been three, four weeks and you're not like really making any sort of like adaptations there, then it might be a sign that like, Hey, maybe it's time to like bump it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and the nice thing too, I know there's always the fear of calories you know, they've done studies where they do like these massive protein, like where they actually increase people's calories just by increasing protein to like crazy amounts, like three, 400 grams a day. And we don't see increases in fat mass from that. So, you know, this kind of, again, I think this throws uh, maybe some sand in the face of the calories in versus calories out theory, but you know, we, we know that different macronutrient compositions are going to alter the way that our body metabolizes nutrients. And it doesn't seem like consuming more protein leads to fat storage, uh, especially within the context of like a whole food, you know, relatively clean diet. So I think that like, it, it's an easy thing to experiment with without having to run. It's not like if you were to eat, you know, 25 to 30 more grams of protein for the next week that you're going to be putting on, you know, a bunch of fat mass from, from doing that. So I think it's an easy thing to experiment with, but generally speaking, I think starting at one gram is going to be solid. Um, if you're sedentary, you know, you probably could get away with lower, but I don't think, I think the benefit you're, you're losing the benefit of the micronutrients that you get from the protein. So, you know, even from that perspective, I think it would be good to start there and then, you know, never really have a need to go lower than that, but maybe, maybe go higher depending on, you know, what your goal is. Agreed. Yeah, totally agree. Let's, uh, let's do a slight pivot and let's talk a little okay. bit about cholesterol because this yes. is the big bad bunny that, um, <laughs> uh, we get, I get asked about all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. and I've, I've had lots of cardiologists on the show, uh, people who are very well versed in cholesterol, um, to talk about this because there is, there is a lot of, I want to say outdated information on cholesterol. I mean, if mm -hmm. someone says good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, I know we have to have a little chat. Um, yeah. So there's that. But then there's also stuff that we don't know, right? So increasing saturated fat, let's say, um, and the impact that that has on cardiovascular disease progression. So let's talk, let's start with, let's start with cholesterol. Maybe let's mm -hmm. just for anyone who thinks that they, there's a difference between good and bad cholesterol. Let's have a little chat with them. Uh, why yeah. is there no such thing as good or bad cholesterol? Yeah. I'm glad you said that for me. So I didn't have to, um, I always have that. Yeah. You know, I just had this conversation with my family actually recently, they were having me look at some of their blood work and they were talking about how their doctor had said, you know, oh, my good cholesterol is in this range. My bad cholesterol is in that range. Um, yeah, there, the reason why we have this assumption of good and bad cholesterol is because we look at, it's mostly from epidemiological research showing that, you know, people who have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease or who have had cardiovascular disease tend to also show high levels of LDL, which is one of those two 
um, you know, there's LDL and then there's HDL. So that kind of gives LDL this quote, bad cholesterol, um, you know, connotation and HDL has been considered the good, the good one. But when you look at it from a physiological perspective, both of them are, are, they're functional. They're important. Like we have to have them. That's the thing people miss. Not like you want your LDL to go to zero. You need to have LDL. They both serve a purpose. You know, LDL, one of its functions is to help bring nutrients and and repair structures to sites of damage in your body. Like if you have damage in your um, arterial walls, LDL is going to go to the site of the damage and it's going to help repair it. Um, but what, you know, and we can talk a little bit about the different cholesterol types, having that happen frequently can cause situations where now that LDL has the potential to become problematic. It can, you know, get lodged in that area and it can, you know, lead to a, a progression towards cardiovascular disease. But, you know, I think a lot of times we have to look at why the damage is there rather than why LDL is the problem. I think, you know, looking at LDL as the, the bad cholesterol would essentially be like, I always, I love this analogy. It's like you drive around the neighborhood and a bunch of police officers. So you just assume that there must be a lot, you know, that the police officer, I'm sorry, you're, you're in a neighborhood and there's a lot of crime and there's a lot of police officers. So you think the police officers are the source of the crime. Um, but it's like, you know, if you wouldn't think that it'd be like, if you come home and there's firefighters at your house and your house is on fire, you're blaming the firefighters for putting out the fire at your house. Right. It's like not necessarily how it would work. You know, the firefighters are there for a reason because there's a fire. So the bigger question as it relates to our bodies is, is why is there a fire there? So, you know, looking at LDL, it's, it's simply correlational why we look at that as being a bad cholesterol. Now, within the LDL context, there is the VLDL, uh, which we can talk a little bit about, which is, is you know, you could probably generally consider to be a, a bad cholesterol. Even so, that you still well, have bad, to be and, creating... And I should, we should say that these are lipoproteins, which are carrying yes. the cholesterol. So the cholesterol doesn't change. It's just yes. the, it's the propensity for the we'll say the purse that has the oyster in it, right? So the oyster doesn't yep. change. It's the purse that changes, but it's whether or not the purse degrades in the presence of oxygen. <laughs> so yes. do you have a Gucci bag that you bought off Canal Street in New York or do you have it from the actual Gucci store? That's what we should be asking, right? Is it like... <laughs> that's a great analogy. <laughs> that's that's from my that. ladies, you know? So is it yeah. is it going to be something that is going to degrade easily and quickly over time or is it from a really great leather maker and it's been stitched well and I don't really know much about purses so this is where my analogy ends but like is yeah. it going to be a high quality or low quality carrier and to your point you know you can't have LDL go to zero and actually there was I wrote about this in my book there was um uh, I think it was from Norway. There was like the N was like 52,000. So it was like a really large study. And they looked at um, cognitive deficits and CVD outcomes with people with low cholesterol. So I'll find the I'll find the link. I'll put it in the show notes. But for people who had low uh, like this is total cholesterol numbers, numbers, uh, low numbers. I think it was under uh Oh, pardon me, LDL, not total cholesterol. It's low LDL, under I want to say 175. It was they had much worse outcomes versus mm -hmm. those who had. Or it was under 195 milligrams per deciliter. Their total cholesterol under 195 milligrams per deciliter. Higher risk of death than women who had cholesterol levels above that cutoff. So mm -hmm. cholesterol is important. It is 
everything. It is a sterile. It makes your vitamin D. It makes all of your sex hormones. Like we can't not have cholesterol. And I misspoke. I said it was LDL. It was actually total cholesterol because I just pulled it up here. Yeah. Um, so we want we want to have a certain number of cholesterol, but it's the carrier that we're concerned with. And I think yeah. that we're um, you know, I've, I have I've had this conversation with uh, Ethan Weiss, with Brett Scher, who who's who his podcast will have been published by the time ours come out. And I think that the honest answer here is that it does seem that LDL in and of itself is an independent risk factor, but it's not the only risk factor, right? Exactly. There can be other mm -hmm. things that we mitigate risk with, right? So maybe speak a little bit about, um, you know, even just things like age and smoking and activity mm -hmm. and inf like we've been talking about inflammation. These are all things that can, uh, we'll say profoundly reduce our risk of CVD development cardiovascular yeah. disease development. Yeah, for sure. And when I think to talk about two, well, one, you know, you mentioned Dr. Brett Schur. Um, he's somebody who I would consider to be like one of the best, you know, educators on this topic. I think Dr. Nadir Ali also is, is doing a lot of great stuff. Dave Feldman, just a couple of resources there for people who are a lot more educated than I am on this topic of, of cholesterol and, and keto and everything. Um, but one of the things that I do want to touch on that I think you brought up really importantly there is I think we make a lot of kind of generalizations of the terms that we use of cholesterol and it kind of encompasses this like everything we just say like oh cholesterol is bad or high cholesterol but there's a, there's a big difference and i think like one thing to talk about is you know the dietary cholesterol that you consume is not the cholesterol that's being measured in your body when you get your HDL and LDL measured. So then it's actually kind of an, an error in anatomy. They should have never called them the same things, but when you consume cholesterol in your diet, so you have eggs, which, you know, your heart doctor will tell you not to have too many of those. Um, you consume eggs, those eggs get packaged. Like, uh, Stephanie was saying is that these, uh, our cholesterol gets packaged into this carrier. So the carrier that takes our dietary cholesterol is called a, a chylomicron or some people say chylomicron. I'm not quite sure exactly how you're supposed to say it, but the chylomicron um, is what's going to take that. And those actually stay in circulation for a very short period of time after you have a meal. I forget what the number is, but it's like less than an hour or something like that where those are available. So when you go in and you're getting a fasted cholesterol test done, that's not the cholesterol that you've been consuming. That's HDL and LDL, which are the carriers of cholesterol. And these molecules are actually created in the liver. So these are produced by the body. So the thing I think we always have to think about is why is the body, why would the body produce something if it's bad for us and it's supposed to kill us? Right. So that kind of makes you realize that like, that's not why, you know, the body is not producing LDL to kill you. The body is producing LDL because there's a demand for LDL to do what it needs to do in the body. And the and, you know, so we have to look at what are the things that are causing this LDL to need to be produced in the first place. And those are things like you mentioned, you know, aging, I think it's general as a general factor, but lifestyle factors like smoking is going to be a big one. Um, and our diet is a huge one too. I know one of the really cool studies I saw, it was at low carb Houston a few years ago. Um, it was, I'm trying to think who was presenting on the topic. It might've actually been um, oh, was it Ivor Cummins? I think that maybe presented on it. He was talking about the glycocalyx or the protect protective layer of our uh, arterial walls. We have this kind of first level of protection, and he shows this study that shows after one high carb meal, that first layer of protection is completely removed for like four hours after you you eat. So now you you know you, when you consume the, these a high carbohydrate meal. 
uh, you've kind of removed this first layer of protection. Now we think about what are some of the other things that you might be consuming in conjunction with that high carbohydrate meal, probably some pro-inflammatory foods that are now causing inflammation that it's not really being able to be, you know, that protective layer can't really protect against that. So now you're starting to create damage to these arterial walls. And now LDL, there's a demand for LDL to go and start to repair and, and fix what's going on there. And then because of that lack of protection, those lack of extra layers, and you know, we talk within LDL, there's these different classifications of LDL. There's the VLDL, which is a lot smaller particle that is more easily able to kind of, um, and I forget the the technical terminology, but more able to get kind of stuck into the arterial wall. It's able to uh, invade like, it easier because of its exactly. size. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, so that's the other thing too, is that if your doctor is just looking at LDL and not looking at VLDL, then it's not really a great picture either, because if your LDL is more of those large buoyant LDL particles that are much less likely to be athero- atherosclerotic, then that's not as big of an issue than these smaller ones. So I, I luckily I am starting to see a little bit of a shift where more doctors are looking at VLDL than maybe five or 10 years ago. I was looking at some of my family members' blood results and was I was pleasantly surprised that they were actually measuring that. Um, I think that's a, maybe an upgrade that's happened in that area, but, um, but yeah, so there's, there's a lot, I think we have to look at, like you said, it is a risk factor in the sense of, you know, if you have high LDL, like there is, you know, Dave Feldman has a lot of great research on like his lean hypermat or his, uh, lean hyper lean responders. Hyper responders. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. You know, where there's, there's something else going on there. That's a reason why maybe their levels are high, but for everybody else is experiencing high levels. There's a reason why that is high and it's most likely it's a lifestyle factor that's causing it. So to, you know, and that's why something like a statin is, you know, if you look at the research on a statin, it's pretty, I, th- there was another study that was talked about at that conference I went to where they were breaking down uh, a study from a, a pharmaceutical company that has statin and they were showing, you know, the data that they presented for reduced cardiovascular risk from taking a statin. And for anybody who's not familiar with how statin works, essentially it like blocks your natural production of these, these internal cholesterol. So now you're, you're kind of, you, it is effective in lowering your cholesterol. Um, but when you look at the actual outcomes, if you break down the raw data from those studies, you see that they fudge the data a little bit. And it's actually something like 1% of the population sees like a 1% decreased risk and cardiovascular events from taking a statin. And that's because, you know, yes, they do lower cholesterol, but that's never been shown to improve anything. You know, just because you have lower cholesterol does not mean that you have uh, a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. And as you highlighted in that study out of, I think you said Norway, um, having lower cholesterol is actually more of a problem in, in a lot of cases. Like uh, it's important for our hormones, but it's also really important for our brain. So we, we tend to see a pretty tight correlation um, between people on, like their cholesterol levels and uh, cases of neurodegeneration or, you know, Alzheimer's, different conditions like that. So uh, it, it's one of the most bizarre things in the health space, in my opinion, this, the way that we look at cholesterol, because not only are we wrong on thinking it's as dangerous as it is, we're missing how important it is. It's like, it's, it's one of the most essential nutrients that we should be, you know, that we should be getting. And and we're looking at this other type of cholesterol in our body. And we're having that tell us that we shouldn't eat dietary cholesterol, which is like I'm saying is, is super important for us. So it's very bizarre how wrong. And, and like, it's not even a, you know, some of the other things I think out there 
that are, you know, like the, the way that we test for things, like we don't test for insulin until it's like far too late. Like some of that is just based on, you know, I think just misunderstandings of like the research, but this other stuff are like based on misunderstandings of just biochemistry, just like the core fundamentals of like how a body operates, which is just really crazy to me. So, um, yeah, the cholesterol thing is, and it's a big thing with because on keto, you know, you do, there is the potential of, of cholesterol to go up. Uh, if you're following keto, um, it may go down. And also we, we see a lot of differences from person to person in that. Um, but the big question is, is, is it actually risky for it to be moving in either direction? And, and that's something that I think we're still trying to figure out. Yeah. And I think that the, what I've observed is that there is, because you are eating more saturated fat that you tend to see a transient rise in total cholesterol in LDL, even LDL particle number, which is like something that we haven't touched on, which I actually think is far, a far more important number to be looking at than just your mm -hmm. LDL. And you were, um, you were mentioning, uh, you know, kind of the VLDLs. And I think what you're referring to is more of like a pattern A and pattern B, right? So if yep. you have like this yep. pattern B, which is like those dense pellet, like, uh, you know, those BB gun pellet, like, you know, VLDLs, the, 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 uh, likelihood, I mean, it's just at this, it's like a game of chance, right? Like if you have mm -hmm. hot, if a higher number of those, the, it is going to, uh, you know, the likelihood that that is going to invade the endothelial wall is much higher than yep. someone who has an LDL particle, uh, who has a pattern A type of, uh, you know, presentation, as you're mentioning, like the big kind of fluffier, the LDL is larger in its particle size. It's less likely to invade that endothelial wall and then attract all the macrophages and the mast cells and then the placking and then all mm -hmm. the things that happen. Yep. Um, and the LDL particle number for me is, I mean, we can't, I, I don't think at this point we can absolve LDL as an independent risk factor for CBD. I think that it's there, but there are so many other variables, again, context that is so important, like the smoking, are you consuming processed foods? As you were saying, what is your exercise and your, you know, your daily movement look like? What are your stress levels like? These are very, very, very important modulators for Mm -hmm. I, and inflammation, as we, we've been we've been touching on today, these are very important modulators for not only cardiovascular disease but cerebrovascular disease and cancer and all like the big four, you know, that and diabetes that kind of get us uh, in the end. So I think that there, um, you know, can you make the argument that you know all things equal, like two individuals, they both exercise, they have low inflammation, uh, you know everything is equal save for their LDL is who's going to likely have the CBD. You could probably make an argument that the individual with the higher LDL is, but is he or she going to, we don't know. Um, right. And I think that if you are actively engaging in some of the things that we're talking about, then you can really mitigate um, your risk. And I really, I, I always ran into this problem in clinic when I was co-managing a patient with a medical doctor who was only looking at total cholesterol because we'd put them on a ketogenic diet and surprise, surprise, for about six months, their LDL and their cholesterol, it looked terrible. Um, right. But it's not a transient change in the LDL or the total cholesterol that matters. It's your lifetime exposure to it that matters. Mm -hmm. So it's not even that you can have LDL elevated for a year, but in the context of your life, you know, a year is not a long time. Right. Yeah. And what I've often found is like that six to nine month mark. That's sort of the number that the timeline 
where we start to see uh, cholesterol coming back down and then we see the kind of a better triglyceride to HDL ratio. We see all these sort yep. of markers um, that you would want to see on a healthy lipid panel um, improve as well as, uh, you know, your LDL particle number, like that pattern A to pattern B um, improving as well. Yeah. And I think you, you brought up a good, good point there talking about the metabolic panel as a whole. I think a lot of times, you know, the way that these blood tests are interpreted in the typical healthcare realm is that it's, you know, we have these reference ranges for these specific uh, measurements and we only look at those measurements independent and irrespective of the rest of them. And it's like, you know, my always question when somebody asks me about, you know, my LDL, is it a problem? It's like, well, did they measure your C-reactive protein? We were talking about that earlier. You mentioned yeah. inflammation, your right? HbA1c. Like if, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. If, if I know your HbA1c and I don't know your, your C-reactive protein, then I can't really tell you if your LDL is a problem or not. Like, you know, if you have high LDL and it's high VLDL and your CRP is elevated and your A1C is high and your triglyceride to HDL ratio is, is pretty high, then like, yeah, I'd say that LDL is probably going to be pretty problematic. Um, but regardless, it's, you know, the path to fixing all of those things is centered around lifestyle. So it's like, we can probably get a little bit less hung up in those things and a little bit more hung up on what are the lifestyle change? Cause the answer to that whole puzzle, you know, if you were to measure all of these things and figure out, you know, Oh, my LDL actually is a problem. The answer is not going to be medication. There's not going to be a medication that's going to come in and solve that problem. It's going to have to be a lifestyle change that that's required to, to make a difference there. So that's what we should really be putting our focus on rather than you know, trying to really like, not that blood work's not important. I think it's, it is important, but uh, you know, the way that we go in the standard healthcare model of test, if you fall outside, here's a prescription, you know, come back in a year and we'll see how you're doing. That's obviously not a solution that's working for anybody. And you can't medicate your way out of a problem you behaved your way into. I'm just going to oh, be that's a great phrase. I'm just going to be honest. Like, and I say it with yeah. love, you can't medicate your way out of a problem that you behaved your way into. And yeah. let, let's touch on, let's touch on uh, glycation. Just, we said HbA1c and I just wanted to touch on this because this will kind of wrap in the carbohydrate uh, conversation yeah. a little bit because glycation is what we're measuring when we do an HbA1c when we're looking at that number. Okay. So I typically like a number under 5.1, like 5.1 is sort of like the upper limit uh, of what we're looking for. And just for the listener, um, we haven't talked about this uh, a ton, but this is basically measuring the average amount of, let's say, blood glucose over the last three months. That's like the easiest mm -hmm. way to to um, uh, to measure it. But what it's actually measuring is glycation, which is the attachment of a sugar like glucose, fructose, whatever, to a protein or a lipid. Right. And the the HbA1c is telling you your average of that glycated hemoglobin over the last uh, three months and red blood cells typically live for about that length. Um, so it's going to tell us the average level of glucose in your, in your blood over that time. And when we have higher glycation, so again, in addition to being a vain woman, <laughs> because <laughs> glycation ages you, right? It ages your yeah. skin, hair, yep. nails, everything, right? Uh, in addition to the aging that happens, uh, it is also another contributor to this cardiovascular disease story that we've been talking about. And I think mm -hmm. that... Um, you know, when we have this like fructose or, or glucose kind of 
you know, attaching to the to the protein or the lipid, it causes those fibers, you know, in the context, let's say of aging, like if it's like stiffening of the collagen in the blood vessels or in the skin or whatever, uh, it causes those protein fibers to become stiff and malformed, right? So now mm -hmm. in the context of your heart health, that vasodilation and constriction is now going to be impeded. In the context of your skin, vasodilation and constriction is going to be impeded. You are going to have, and, and you know, more oxidation, less blood flow, et cetera. So mm -hmm. I love to look at HbA1c again in yeah. context, right? It's important to look at all of these numbers in context. It would be just silly to be like, oh, your total cholesterol is over 200. You need to be on a statin. Yeah, totally. And, and A1c is another one of those tests that's really hard to get done. A lot of doctors won't test it. You know, I know, again, I was looking at my family's numbers and I was asking if they had gotten that tested and they you know, said that their doctor said, well, you're not diabetic. Like they asked to get it done. The doctor said, well, you're not diabetic. So right. you don't need to get it tested. And it's like, well, that's kind of a good way to figure out if you're diabetic is by measuring that. Um, but the you're, issue, you're what typically happens yet, is, so we're not going to look at it right. quite yet. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we look at, it's, it's so, so problematic because we look at glucose that's fasting glucose is what they're going to measure. And what they'll do is, is they'll wait, you know, your fasting glucose gets up to 90 and they'll say, Oh, it's getting a little high, but you're fine. Oh, it gets up to a hundred. Oh, it's getting pretty high. You know, and you start getting up to 120. It's like, Oh, now you're pre-diabetic. Let's look at your A1C and then your A1C is off the charts right. and say, like, Oh, let's test your insulin. Your insulin's off the charts. And because you know, glucose, you're only looking at one single time point and it is useful. It's a useful time point, but it's a single time point. Yeah. Whereas A1C is going to tell you, you know, and insulin is its own conversation because insulin can be elevated for 10 years before you start seeing high glucose. So they should be measuring insulin first instead of glucose. But aside from that, A1C, like you said, it's a three month average. So you're getting a better picture. Like I could come in for a fasted glucose test in the morning and I could either I could have reactive hypoglycemia. So my glucose could actually seem low on that test. And they might think that I have no problem. My glucose could be high because of like white coat syndrome and, and a lot of cortisol. And people might think that it's, it's, you know, elevated and it's a problem. Um, you know, it could be, maybe I'm actually pre-diabetic and I'm having a little bit of that dawn effect. And based on when I've tested in the morning, I'm seeing changes in my numbers because of that. So mm -hmm. like, there's so many things that alter that single time point. And that's why the A1C test is so useful is because you're looking at the three month average, you're getting a better picture. If your A1C is elevated, that's a much better marker of there being kind of a bigger issue that needs to be looked at than just having elevated or not elevated blood glucose. We had um, Casey Means on the show when, and she was talking about levels. And I was like, what would yeah. be your ideal thing that you would want in a CGM? Because she has her company is a has a continuous glucose monitor and like an app to kind yeah. of go with it. And she was like, I would love insulin. And I was like, I agree, because that yeah. is, at, you know, to your point, that is where we see the derangement first. And interesting fact is that we actually see insulin resistance first in the muscle. And there's been uh, there's been quite a few studies that have looked looked at a single weight training session, being able to overcome at least transiently the insulin resistance that is kind of set into that tissue. So if we can, again, yeah. when we're looking at musculoskeletal health, uh, we really want to be thinking like some of the disease really does start in the muscles and that, in that skeletal system first and the Skeletal, yeah. skeletal muscles. So if you, and I, I want to kind of bring in the bio coach uh, conversation here a little bit, yeah. because I know that uh, you have a, there's like glucometers and you're looking at ketone levels. Like what is, you know, and you made this transition recently. I know you're still working with, with, um, 
uh, with real keto, but talk, talk to us perfect a little keto, bit. Yeah. Perfect keto. Pardon me. That's right. Yeah. That's what I no, said. You're good. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, actually, you know, one of our other products that we have, speaking of the A1C, we actually do have an at-home A1C test. Oh, nice. Um, so this is something that you can get on our site separate from our core product, but it's something that, um, again, just because of, we realized how hard it was for some people to get that done. We sell these kits that they have, uh, it's four, four tests in it. So you could either, you know, it's good for a year if you test every three months, or if you want to test it on fan, like I just got one and did a test with all of my family last time I was home, uh, which I'm sure they loved, loved me doing that with them. Um, but so that's, that's one of our things, but BioCoach, So we're, you know, we're a platform that we're trying to, we're fighting this global metabolic health, uh, epidemic that we're being faced with. So we have a glucose and ketone meter that reports data to an app. Um, and our app is really our kind of our sweet spot. That's really where a lot of our effort has gone to. Um, there's a lot of other companies. I think they're doing similar things to this. Uh, but what we're doing a little bit differently is that, you know, we're not just trying to show you, I think a lot of apps will report, they'll record the data and they'll report the data to an app. And then, you know, it's, it shows you what you've done. And I think for some people that can be great. I think for you and I, that's great because we have a pretty good understanding of, of the science and ourselves and, and metabolic health that we can take that data and we can apply it and, and learn from it. But for most people, they don't know you know, what that stuff means. So we're, instead of just showing you what you've done, we're trying to show you what to do with this information. So we have a lot of different coaching features built into our app, um, kind of centered around the analogy I like to give is it's, it's kind of like the, uh, Peloton of, of metabolic health. So we have these, uh, these journeys in our, we call them quests in our app that you can join that are led by folks like Dr. Jamie Seaman, Logan Delgado, myself, Danielle Hamilton, um, Dr. James DiNicolantonio, uh, these different, you know, some of them will be centered around, you know, getting into ketosis, um, you know, getting fat adapted, improving your fasted morning blood sugar. And within these quests, you get guided through what to eat, when to test your blood sugar, how to interpret your results. Um, you have, you know, different educational videos that pop up throughout uh, and then we've also built in rewards and, and kind of gamification into it. So when you do things in the app, you get the ability to spin a wheel and you can win, you know, free. We have uh, these uh, partnerships with, you know, like Perfect Keto, for instance, you can win free Perfect Keto bars um, by spinning the wheel or you can win like a discount to, um, you know, Redmond Real Salt and, and stuff like that. So we're trying to make it fun. Like we want this to be yeah, we don't want to just show people data and say, here, go, you know, do what you will with this. Like we want to kind of have this community where we're helping you and we're, we're making it fun too. We're giving you, you know, you have the opportunity to kind of get your cost of ownership down to negative and actually, you know, make money from the platform by, you know, completing all of the things that are in there. So uh, we're really excited about it. We are, we're about a week out. We're going to be doing a small private beta testing group next week. Um, we've been really working hard to to get our app to the point where we can do that. So we're going to be doing a beta test with about 30 people. And then a couple of weeks after that, we're going to open it up to our pre-orders. Um, so anybody who's pre-ordered or anybody that does pre-order in the next couple of weeks, um, which can be done at our website, we're going to open it up to them. And then uh, shortly after that, hopefully by you know middle of Q4, towards the end of this year, we're going to launch it out to the public. Um, but it's it's been a really exciting thing for me, you know, coming from food. Um, this is a whole new realm for me getting to be involved in app development and, you know, medical technology and stuff. Um, so I'm getting, I'm basically drinking out of a water of a fire hose right now, trying to, to learn all of this stuff. I feel like every day I wake up in a new world. Um, but, but we're, we're, you know, I think we're doing something that's really good. We're trying to take something that's, you know, relatively boring and, and make it fun. And, you know, hopefully you guys will, will let us know if we're doing a good job of that or not. 
I love that. I love that. And where can people, so we can find you, I'll make sure the bio coach is in the show notes for people to check it out. Where can people interact and find you? You are so well-spoken. I know you're still doing the perfect keto. You're still doing the perfect keto podcast. I'm assuming. I am. I'm still doing the perfect keto podcast. Um, so that's keto answers podcast. It can be found on Spotify and, and everywhere else. Uh, and then on, you know, social media, I'm, I'm the ketologist and usually Instagram is kind of just the primary place where I do a lot of my work there. Uh, I haven't been able to get myself to adopt some of those other platforms like TikTok and everything. I think I'm, I think I'm getting old, uh, having a hard time with that. So mostly just on Instagram. Uh, and then I have a newsletter as well. That's called the thinking health newsletter. That's kind of a combination of, uh, health and philosophy. It's kind of more about like nutrition and health mindset. Um, so that's on Substack under thinking health. Beautiful. I'll make sure that all of those are in the show notes. Chris, it's so lovely connecting with you. You're so well-spoken, so re- well-researched, and it's just such a pleasure. Anytime I get to connect with you is time well spent. So thank you so much for your time today and helping my audience learn more about some of the nuances of the ketogenic diet. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on today. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.